Yeah, and it's having adults around who aren't fuckwits. And a lot of people don't have that. Hi, welcome back and thank you for your support uh, for the Miller vs. Berger podcast. It's been great to see how many people have been listening and the terrific comments and feedback that we've received and it's exciting to be able to introduce this episode which is uh something different now it was um a conversation that i had with sam connor um people with disabilities advocate and uh as you will see uh, a, a terrific and eloquent person who uh, feels very much from the heart um the plight of disabled people trying to find their way um in a community that by and large wants to uh, just get on with with life with blinkers on so I hope you enjoy the conversation I had with Sam. Berger was travelling at the time that I talked to her and so what we did was I played the conversation back to him uh, to get his uh, response and, and comments, which, as always, uh, I think um, thoughtful, considered and get to the point in a way that um, many of us would like to be able to, but really it's a uniquely uh, Berger skill, I think, to summarise things and try to direct that anger that we feel, that emotion that we feel about the injustice, the unfairness at times that faces people into something constructive uh, that can build a future, that can build a conversation and build a community uh, that will effectively respond um, to people's needs uh, at the time that they need it. And uh, that's where we start out in the conversation with Sam. I hope you uh, enjoy it as much as uh, I did recording it. And um, you'll no doubt enjoy the response of Berger. Here we go. You are a pretty committed um, and almost involuntary disability advocate would that be a reasonable way of putting it never heard it framed that way but yes absolutely especially the involuntary bit well you can't help yourself i don't think can you yeah no so when i was 11 years old um you know aside from me having a degenerative disability i have um, limb girdle muscular dystrophy um, my best friend was shot in the back of the neck went to live in an institution when he was 11 and so you know, so and that was a very long time ago because I'm quite old, and so um, that's kind of informed my, I guess, life and advocacy is about that sense of unfairness, you know, that people shouldn't be shut in, into institutions or treated differently or not being allowed in society, which of course is what's happening today. Your what's your friend's first name? Darren. 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 And is Darren still with us? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's, although being very old, he's a year older than me, almost to the day. Um, Darren is the um, the chair of a disability service provider that provides services for people with spinal cord injuries. Uh, we're still great friends. He's kind of like my big brother, much older brother. And, um, you know, we've. Um, I wasn't a wheelchair user when we were little kids running around together. He was 11 when he was shot and I became a wheelchair user when I was about 40. 
And so I had this great fear. And so there was a great deal of country support, you know, for him at that time. But of course, it was all charity based and there wasn't really any services like the NDIS or any, you know, any real services in 1979. So, yeah, so it was a very different, different environment from what we have today. Are you in, in touch with what your feelings were like as an 11 year old? to see this happen or 10 year old to see this happen to your friend? Is that something that's etched in your mind as a long term yeah, thing? It's quite different from how we think about disability now. I think, you know, we had um, the Darren West quest. Um, Darren was, um, you know, a person who was surrounded by people who were doing good things and raising money for TV for him and to try and keep him out of an institution. Um, there was also, um, you know, we had uh, the telephone at the time where kids would ring up and give their pocket money to disabled and sick kids. And it's quite tricky to, you know, when this, the disability and the sickness stuff isn't separated, you know, what does that look like? You're giving your pocket money to people who you feel sorry for. That kind of informed all of our thinking, that charity model. And then now as an adult, I think very much more about the social model versus the medical model, you know, where um, the problem isn't so much with us as people who are disabled, because everyone gets disabled when they get old, right? Um, the problem is with society that doesn't actually have accessible buildings, accessible information, um, a world where we can all live, you know, equally. And so my thinking around that's changed quite a lot. So, Birdra, I was going to ask you how that um, sort of uh, vibes with your experience with remote um, medical services that we have this charity model which is a bit outmoded compared to what the government should just provide yeah I mean charity is a way it, it, you know is a way of inducing people to pay tax in a way I mean the one that always strikes me is the RFDS the flying doctors you know People in Australia, I mean, bless them, they're very civic-minded and they want to do good things and do charity runs and stuff. And they actually think that they fund the RFDS, but they don't fund the RFDS. They fund a very small part of the RFDS, the Flying Doctor Service. Most of it, because when it started, as, as Sam says, you know, this was a charity. Uh, this was a charity organisation and that's how services were delivered uh, going right back to the 19th century. And gradually, we've seen a replacement of that charity with uh, government provision, which is as it should be. Um, and, you know, most of the flying doctor service is funded by government contracts, in fact, uh, to provide an air ambulance service. So, uh, and, and yet people have the impression that it's all funded by charity and it isn't. Um, uh, so, yeah, that, that, uh, that's gels very strongly with uh, what I think. And, and it's this, I think that move away from charity, which itself is a, is a terribly disparaging term, actually, is, is totally appropriate. And that people actually have a right to provision for their diversity and that they don't have to depend on charity in inverted commas and they should not have to depend on sympathy because that is not dignified 
So I I totally support what Sam's saying. I think that's a really nice way of putting it that um, that it's not a not a dignified way to provide for people's needs. So she goes on to talk about it a bit more. That's one of the things that's really interested me about your advocacy is uh, that I don't think there's been enough conversation around the problems with the expectation that charity is what's required. It's passing strange that we have a charity drive to be fulfilling any of the needs of our relatively small population. Yeah, absolutely. And remember um, that the, there's also that pity model, you know, where they push the idea that disability is a tragedy, right? So the advertising even is all very much based on um, people feeling sorry for you. So it has a societal effect as well about the attitudes of people towards disabled people. There's also that false belief of people that there there is a group of healthy people and a group of unhealthy people and the, the healthy people will remain healthy uh, for the rest of their lives. And the other problem with this whole pity slash charity approach to looking after what are perfectly predictable events that are going to happen to a, a large section of the population, the, the, the other problem with it is that it, it can breed a bit of resentment amongst people where they feel that this is a cost rather than an investment or, or an ethical and natural justice part of living in a society. And, you know, really when we look at, you know, things like the NDIS, which there was a great deal of opposition to, um, we, you know, if you look at it in terms of economic rationalisation, we are a commodity, you know, as disabled people, because we're part of a chain of services and of, um, you know, we're the reason a workforce exists, you know. So we have, um, we create work for disability support workers, we have huge return to GDP. Um, there's not really an understanding that, you know, disability is a normal and natural part of life, as is care. And when, you know, obviously we want everybody to be healthy and happy, but that also does involve care, you know, for everybody. I was going to ask you what you thought about um, the, this resentment that is the, the, the flip side of the coin of, or, or, or another risk of raising money based on um, charity and pity. Yeah, I mean, the thing that really strikes me working in medicine, both as a GP and as an emergency doctor, is that, as Sam says, you know, we are all a hair's breadth away from needing uh, the care that we pity others for needing. Um, and this notion, as she says, that society is divided into healthy and unhealthy is complete nonsense. And it's a kind of health fascism. We get even closer than a hair's breadth away, don't we? Because we think nothing of claiming our Medicare claim. Uh, yeah, when we oh, need it, absolutely. If one of, one of us breaks it. a leg yeah, exactly. or something like that, exactly. the motorcycle yeah. accident, no one's mm. saying they're, they're, there's someone kind of sponging off the government because they've had a motorcycle yes. accident. Um, and it's, it's interesting, sort of like way out. back, way back in prehistory in the 1980s in, in London, when I was in medical school, we had in our sociology uh, of medicine course, there was a lot about the perils of dividing the sick into the worthy sick and the unworthy sick, and the way that that reflected the prejudices of the person labeling that. And of course, in this case, 
you know, middle class white, not so much male, male, female, but middle class white kind of Protestant ethos. Um, and I think it still does. And I was talking about this with one of the residents in the emergency department only yesterday about the way that we we have this preconception uh, of, of who is worthy sick and who is unworthy sick. Um, and it's very, you know, when you look at it like that, you realize how parochial that is, what a parochial kind of view that is. So I very much agree with what Sam's saying there. Thank you. It involves care for um, children, for example, who we don't see as disabled. We don't see babies as being, you know, uh, but we have childcare and nobody resents us having putting money into childcare because people have children and then they, you know, might go off to work or whatever. And so the care workforce is just a part of everyday life and it shouldn't be something to be resent, resented. But when you look at that charity mindset and how that's turned around, there is a great deal of resentment and people have used it, you know, like the robo debt stuff around poor people and disabled people and the NDIS being used as a... Um, a narrative about how, you know, how people want gold-plated wheelchairs and all this kind of thing. But really, it's just, it's an investment in... Yeah, Australians I'm, I'm boiling with outrage sure as I listen to this we, about RoboJet. Um, get rid of the bridge between a disabled life and an ordinary life. I appreciate your previously public stated view that there shouldn't be uh, d decisions about you without you. And so I guess what I'm looking for... For people like Berger and myself and others who feel strongly about these issues is uh, what is the best way to be an, an ally? What, what's your advice for people in our situation? Well, I think, you know, for, you know, you and Berger are doing an outstanding job in raising awareness about not just COVID, for example, but long COVID. Um, but I guess also the, I think maybe allies can extend it to thinking about the right for all people to be part of the world, you know. So if I had to think of a hashtag for what that might look like, mm. it would be we belong, you know. So we pay taxes, we belong in society. We shouldn't have to stay home from the library or from the doctors or from the hospital or from the dentist or from wherever because we don't, we no longer belong in society because we do. And that goes for your great grandma, that goes for a disabled child, you know, you belong in school as well. So I think pushing that message of inclusion, inclusion and diversity have become dirty words, I think, lately, you know, they've been politicised. Um, I think that there's some doctors in the medical profession who are doing, and, and representatives who are doing an outstanding job of being advocates, and we're hugely grateful for that. And I think other doctors are perhaps need to be a little bit more informed because, um, you know, when it comes to us as people, you know, all we have is our trusted health professionals, really, to give us timely and good advice about COVID and what it might mean for us. But that goes for the rest of the population too. So do you think what uh, our colleagues need is to perhaps just be a bit more informed? Mm, I don't know. I mean... I, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is I feel really embarrassed at how late I've come to any understanding of this. And I was beginning to understand before the pandemic and when the pandemic started and, uh, you know, I, 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 I've come to a greater understanding. 
I don't think it's a question of being informed. I think it's a cultural mindset. Um, one of the things that I've become very aware of in recent years is the sheer decision density and stress in a medical working day and how I'm talking here specifically of doctors and nurses too, but I'm obviously I know, I know more about doctors um, and the way that we have to uh, create strategies to survive. Um, and I think that the workload that we have all uh, born for many years and accepted and welcomed and worn as a badge of pride, you know, as under the guise of, in inverted commas, professionalism, has been very heavy and it remains very heavy. And I think that armor that we create to survive as a doctor uh, is a big part of the problem and that we don't have enough thinking time and we don't have enough compassion time and we don't have enough reflection time that actually we, you know, in, in some ways we're like a kind of military viewing patients as civilians, you know, the military divides the world into the military and civilians and, and we divide the world into us and, us and patients. Um, and that distinction is, as Sam says, and is so obviously false, but I think that's a big part of the problem that we don't to survive and it is very confronting and actually my son's in third year medicine at Monash and it's really interesting watching him dealing with the things that he is seeing every day on the wards and and trying to understand and trying to fit those in and uh, and not carrying it home too much and not being too upset and you realize that you do create an arm. I mean, I don't know what your feeling is, Andrew, but um, certainly, you know, you just can't in a way. You have to have an armor. And I think that does separate us from patients and or and yeah, from I think the it's really interesting. being patients. And that, that, that's what makes, I'll just to say, that's what makes doctors such, sometimes such terrible patients and scared patients. Yep. I don't know how to um, inform people to the degree that they need to change what, they, what they're doing because we have um, the medical board and AMC now saying um, that cultural safety training for a certain number of hours is, is important in an attempt to try and address some of these issues that have been brought up by consumers and others quite rightly. And adding another mandatory module is almost guaranteed to induce negativity amongst, yeah, uh, amongst medical course. practitioners because of the, the burnout already, as you say. And it's well known that um, there is literal compassion fatigue in that the more tired people are, the less mm. compassionate they are. That has been measured many, many times. And so uh, I think there's two elements to this. One is you need to be... In a, in a mind, uh, in a state of mind where you can provide that compassion, but then you need yeah. to be informed, as Sam says, as to why you should be providing that compassion yeah. and why uh, 
there is not a distinction between the worthy sick and the unworthy sick and her distinction between disability and, and sickness is really interesting and something she goes on to a bit more so we'll, we'll carry on yeah i mean just to say that really requires calm and reflection and that's that's the difficult thing to provide yeah just to say that 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 requires calm and reflection uh and to find that is is so difficult i mean i think it, it's you know it's critically important uh if if this is ever to change but as you say like another another module is is bullshit and we we know that and and everybody's going to go oh my god uh, everybody's going to go oh here's another module uh and then the word will go around that oh it doesn't matter you can figure out how to answer the questions without doing the modules just click through and get to the quiz at the end that's how it works that's how modules yes. work and there'll be some who who don't want to improve the way they relate to patients because their business yes. is going fine just the way it is and they don't need to do anything different yes. to, to achieve their goals in life who will be simply irritated yes. by it and there'll be others like yourself who are a lot more reflective about it um mm. but but all we can do i suppose is outline the outline the traps and hope that uh, people don't fall into them more than they need to yeah um what does it mean if you get long COVID? You know, if you've joined the, our ranks, the ranks of the disabled, um, what does it mean for your work life? What does it mean for you long-term? And I don't want to paint being disabled as a, a terrible thing, but being sick is, you know, you don't want to spend days and days in bed. You don't want to have to stop going and being with your family. You don't want to have to rely on care and rely on family and feel like a burden occasionally. You don't want to um, miss out on the life that you used to have and you don't want your life to change. How's your anger level going when you consider people being chronically unwell with COVID and going to get medical help and being told that it's uh, all in their mind and they need to kind of toughen up a bit? Yeah, uh, my anger level is pretty high on that and also my embarrassment in how I have written off people in the past because I don't understand what's happening. And therefore, if I don't understand what's happening, the presumption has always been and still is in medicine that it therefore can't be real and everybody's mad except me. So uh, I completely I completely understand what's happening. Uh, and yeah, I, and I feel uh, less angry, more desperate for people who must be ill and sick and feeling terrible and wanting help and then have this double tragedy of not being believed and it's just that must just make you feel so desperate i can't imagine it and there's nowhere that people know really where to turn in those circumstances many no. times i'm sure plus the disease itself mitigates against the treatment um yes having the energy to to yeah. seek out uh, a solution with a yeah. negative profession stacked up against you um, is a Sisyphean task. Yeah. So I do think a lot of people don't really understand what it's like. What, what's been your experience with sickness and, and disability and how that's affecting people's access to healthcare at the moment uh, with, with people with pre-existing um, problems that may be make them more more vulnerable in the time of a respiratory pandemic it's just very complicated so for example 
I have limb girdle, which involves a condition called um, rhabdomyolysis occasionally, um, which is where I, you know, might exert myself too much and then my urine changes colour and goes really dark. I have like really achy muscles and my body aches a lot. Um, you can get really sick from it. Like it's a, a thing. So essentially your, your muscles are breaking down and those byproducts yeah. are the things that are affecting yeah. It's like enzymes everything. breaking down into your system. And so it means that I essentially go to bed and, you know, on occasion should go to hospital, right? You know, that would be the sensible place for me to be. I have limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i which unfortunately is the type that affects your heart and lungs. And so, you know, although I'm reasonably healthy for a, you know, a 55-year-old, I'm also um, at risk more than other people are, you know, like other people in my community. You know, so if, and when you take it all the way back to the start of it, which is around disability, um, I need to have enough care so that I'm not exerting myself. So um, I'm really lucky that I have an NDIS-funded um, power device that fits onto my manual wheelchair um, but if I don't have a human body to assist me with some things then I can get really sick and so you know that's why it's important that the disability systems work well um, so that I don't get sick and that you know I'm, I'm able to stay out of hospital and and not use up the health system resources yeah and you said that um things like um, diversity and inclusion are all, all, almost becoming dirty words at the moment partly because I think people see corporations then roll out relatively meaningless um, kind of mindless uh, responses to these things that don't really involve genuine changes in, in the culture as far as the the people in these organisations, I try to tease out because there, there's no such thing as an organisation. There's only people that all commonly believe in an organisation, and if you don't change the attitudes of the people, I think that's what causes the pushback. But one thing people do that, that never seems to really go out of fashion is the concept of fairness, and I think it's trying to recast these arguments in terms of well we will make all sorts of allowances for a footballer who's done their ACL and, and needs a wheelchair as a result in, in the short term, and that might be a tragedy depending on which team you're supporting at the time. But we, we seem to need to remind our community a lot that, that fairness extends beyond the things that, that we can relate to that we regard yeah, as a virtuous kind of, kind of illness. And this overlaps this even with things concept. like um, people with mental it's health disability and um, mental health sickness as well. In, in your uh, experience of mentoring other people who are disabled and so on, how much extra burden is there in trying to get past the unfairness that they're seeing from other oh, humans? Gosh, mm. it's just enormous. And, you know, we have this culture of rugged individualism now, you know, um, mm. Everybody seems to be pushing for that idea that, you know, we're not a community and we don't have a responsibility to each other. But of course we do. Of course we do. And, you know, you think about fairness and you think about equality. They're really two different things. So fairness is, you know, if you were delivering a lecture in an auditorium, if you had a heart attack um, in the middle of there, I mean, I wouldn't turn around and say, can't give you up, I can't give you resuscitation because I'd have to give it to everybody else in the mm. audience and that wouldn't be fair. 
you know, that's because that would be equal, wouldn't it? You know, so fairness is that you help people get what they need when they need it. And that's what a fair and equitable society mm. should look like. And that's not accidental. And people just don't really have that concept and understanding now because we're pushing this narrative. That's political. This is post-Thatcherite. So hard that it's all about everyone for themselves. But, you know, there's people in the middle of the pandemic who are talking about, mm. well, you'll be okay. You know, just wear a mask or just stay home. And um, really, you know, there's not that understanding that we're talking about sickness for everybody. We're talking about some people dying. Yeah, sure. You know, myself included. Um, we talk, but we're really talking about the whole community mm. working in the way that it's worked for however many years. We're talking about people being able to get the care that they need, you know, and doctors and nurses and disability care workers being able to go to work because they're not getting sick all the time. We're talking about disabled kids being able to go to school and we're talking about everybody mm. being able to belong to the community and be part of the community. And so um, I think the term is interdependence. And, you know, we are interdependent um, on each other. That's something that I really wish would change in community right now. And instead, we're having a kind of pastiche of, of John Wayne Wild West inflicted upon us. Yeah, the the rise of the, the rugged individual. Um, mm. Do you think that that's a generational thing? Do you think it will persist into the, the next generation who seem to have a growing anger around being cut out economically from, from the future and yeah. environmentally? Yeah, hard to know. Uh, I feel a lot of, I mean, you know, this was all supposed to be solved in the 1960s, wasn't it? You know, the, the new generation was was supposed to be all about fairness and inclusion and, and such like. And, uh, you know, and there was a, there was a lot of movement then. We had, uh, you know, in Britain, we had, uh, you know, homosexuality. The bill was legalized 1968. You know, this was a, there was a kind of social movement. But right now, the young people are, angry with those boomers. So it failed, actually. I mean, although, uh, you know, in some ways, we've had progress. Overall, I think there's been a failure. And I think that we are regressing at the moment, to this kind of a, a pastiche of the John Wayne Wild West, as Sam says, rugged individualism, everybody, you know, kind of fighting for themselves and worth being defined by money and how well you can look after your immediate family. I mean, it's very, this kind of neoliberal, post-Thatcherite, Reagan, and it's just got out of control. Um, and everything shifted onto the individual. You do you, you know, we don't need to look after each other anymore. Everybody for themselves, save yourselves, uh, you know, do what you like, um, survive if you can type of ethos. Um, and that's yeah. not natural for us as humans, actually. Um, and it's, no, it's, it's quite anti-Australian. Australians aren't like that, actually. There's a very strong civic... un-Australian. Un-Australian, yeah, there you go. I mean, there's this yeah. very kind of civic-mindedness in Australians. And, and, and the way that Australia and New Zealand dealt with the pandemic in the first year was amazing really 
And, you know, I remember the rest of the country going, you know, go Melbourne. Thanks very much for all you're doing for us. We really appreciate it. And, and, and that narrative evaporated in the second year. And I don't think any of this is accidental. I, I don't think uh, uh, that that just it was a natural phenomenon. I think there was a, a, a very strong intention to replace that narrative with this rugged individualism, you do you. Uh, yeah, as I say, that was intentional. My point is it's going to be very hard to erase Australia's need to see itself as as fair and the idea of volunteerism is pretty strong so when there's mm. a bushfire people will risk their oh, yeah. own lives for no money yes. at all to try and save someone else's property and they get a taste of that mateship yes. um, but then yes. there's this anti-socialism kind of narrative that comes forward um, mm. that sort of portrays people who have chronic needs as opposed to acute needs as being somehow weak or undeserving. Um, mm. And so... I mean, it, it's remarkable for me coming from... Very strong. I mean, coming from Britain, it, it was remarkable to me when I saw how the Rural Fire Service worked and, the, you know, the SES... Uh, state emergency service, all with volunteers, and a lot in a lot of places the ambulance crews are all volunteers. And here in in Broome, a lot of there are a lot of volunteers alongside the paid uh, ambulance techs and paramedics. Um, and coming from Britain, I mean that was remarkable to me because we don't really have anything like that. Um, and there is this very strong community mindedness, this very strong fairness. Aussies looking after Aussies. And to see that replaced so quickly, I mean, it was shocking and rather frightening, actually. But people have limited capacity, right? And it, you must be even more limited if you're also dealing um, constantly with your own disability and sickness on top of that. So what, what do you do to not burn out? in the midst of all this you know my logical side says well i'll be a better you know i'll be in a better position to advocate for people if i've um you know gone and had a nice uh, nice chinese meal somewhere and a glass of wine and not felt too guilty about it it's that uh it's how, how do you strike that balance it's well, it's really hard but i think i'm incredibly fortunate that i'm surrounded by amazing people in the disability sector you know that um they always say, you know, we want to help people to have an ordinary life. And I know people living extraordinary lives everywhere. So, you know, so um, people, you know, I'm surrounded by remarkable people who um, are just, you know, my lifeline to everything, really. I think that feeling guilty is something that, you know, we all do and it's a human thing and it's a healthy thing to do. And you're right, you need to take care of yourself so that you don't burn out. And everywhere that you go, I mean... Um, I remember a homeless guy who um, I was talking to on the street said to me one day, oh, look, I'm really glad that I'm not like you. <laughs> and I just went, oh, <laughs> that just put me back into my place as a wheelchair user, <laughs> you know, because he had his legs. And, and this was a guy who was, you know, really grotty, had been living on the streets for ages and was drunk and la, la, la. And, you know, most people walking past would have had a really poor opinion of this man. And I just thought... 
gosh, there you go. I'm I'm the, I'm the worse off than you know than this this bloke on the street. And I was actually quite cheered by it. And so from then on, I thought you know I've got a real problem with strangers pushing my wheelchair. And, um, you know, just a bit of a dignity thing. I'd much rather have a support worker or a family member. But I thought, oh, I'll let the homeless guys, if they want to, like, push my wheelchair before I give them money. That's fine. <laughs> so to, to level up that power and balance. <laughs> and it's actually been really good, you know. Like I've said to people, um, you know, would you mind, like, I'm really lonely. Would you mind coming out for a meal with me, you know, and just sitting outside in the beer garden and having a drink and a meal with a homeless person? It's been lovely. <laughs> so, so changing that whole idea about, you know, um, I think getting rid of that guilt is something that's hard. Sorry, just explain that a bit more for me. You've, you've gone out for, for a meal in the beer garden with some, with homeless people? Quite, quite, quite often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really, um, it's really been lovely because. Is there a typical response that you get from them when you, when you make this invitation? It's been, it's been, I think I've only ever been told to rack off once, and that's fair. You know, you don't want to be picked up by a strange woman on the street. But, um, well, maybe been... they'd just come back from the beer garden having lunch with somebody <laughs> yeah, else. <laughs> absolutely. But it's been really lovely that, you know, you get to meet with people on a human level. Quite often, if you're walking back from the pub or a club or something, you'll meet homeless people in the street where they're congregating and have a chat. And I think, you know, being disabled is quite a leveling thing where, you know, you're able to talk to people in community share your drink, whatever. Um, but, you know, I really like the, you know, I quite like mad people because I'm also mad. Um, but I quite like talking to people who have got interesting stories and, you know, and, and these are disabled people, you know, quite often. They're people with brain injuries, they're mm. people with mental health conditions. You usually don't end up homeless for no reason at all. And um, people with AOD, with um drug and alcohol addictions and so it's really interesting for me like I feel like I'm being given a gift by people you know I might be buying them a meal but I'm getting a gift from those people like learning about their stories and where they've come from and it helps me understand advocacy and how to understand how to be a better advocate so yeah it's really a give and take thing that's I've been doing it all wrong because my guilty pleasure is um, if I'm traveling going going and having a meal on my own and uh, having, you know, no other conversation. But I think I might try that as a um, way of learning something from from people because uh, I don't network very well with, with peers. I'm uncomfortable in those kind of um, social situations attached to conferences and that kind of thing, which I find, you know, it's, you get a, it's a bit like being at a wedding. You get a chance mm. to have a 100 superficial conversations. Um, but But learning from... Colourful characters is something I can imagine would be would be much more interesting. And it's it's a hard thing to do, I think, you know, because you know you're a white guy who you know normally wears a suit, right? And I'm the disabled person who they're looking down on quite often, so it'd be a more difficult thing to. Do. So I've got a privilege in a way that I'm a wheelchair user, and that I can relate to people on a different level as well. Um, but I think it is like if you if you're ever talking to poor people to you know, anybody who comes from a different part of society, you know, um, refugees, you know, people who have come from war-torn countries, you always, you know, when you connect with people on a personal level, um, you usually have to give a bit of yourself as well, you know, and I'm very open and ADHD and <laughs> talk a lot. So, um, but giving of yourself means that people give back. And so, 
I think doctors quite often do that very well. What, what do you think, Berger? Do you think your experiences of working in emergency departments has given you a, a, a different view of humanity? Yeah, uh, yeah. If you don't get a different view of humanity from working in emergency departments, you're you're really missing something. You're not very alive. Um, yeah, I, I, it's so interesting what she says about how she can use her position to interact with people in a in an uh, in a much less threatening way. Um, I and it's difficult, you know, when you're coming. I don't want to. I don't want sympathy, but you know, you're a white middle-aged male. Uh, the classic power uh, personality in our society. Uh, people do tend to clam up, um, and so I mean, quite often I'll just sit in the chair by the patient's bed sometimes, just looking away from them, uh, and you can get a lot more by doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting what, uh, yeah, what and, she's saying. It is inspiring, isn't it? Inspiring too. I think I've learned something today, which is that um, when you said that I don't like st- strangers pushing my mm. wheelchair, do you mean you you don't like um, asking them to do so or you don't like it when people assume that you need that assistance? Oh, a little bit of both. I mean, quite often they will come up and put their hands on your wheelchair and just push you, which is a bit like grabbing some woman's shoulders and helping her off the train, right? You know, so it's really breaching your autonomy as, you know, bodily autonomy is. That's really interesting. Um, So, yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, that's that's what I assumed that you meant. And I I must, um, I must say, I, I, I had, I'd never previously considered it, but the very idea that I would be in a wheelchair and suddenly someone would take it upon themselves to start pushing me in a particular direction, I really don't like that. No, it's terrifying. And they they don't know what to do as well. So, you know, quite often they'll try and push your wheel off a train and your front casters will go into a hole and you get tipped out or that kind of thing. So you just don't let people do it. But there's also, you know, it is quite an intimate thing if you're providing care to somebody and you're allowing them to assist you in some way. If you do see people struggling, there's no hurt, there's no harm in saying, would you like a hand? If they say, no, I'm fine, you just say, yeah, great. Have a great day. It's easy. And isn't that a metaphor in a way for where we're at with with COVID where unless people are in the situation, they can't really understand what it's like. And so one of the big frustrations that Berger and I have had has been infection control in these healthcare facilities dropping uh, all, all protections as if they're not required. And that's sort of the subtext really is that this has all been a bit of a fuss uh, about nothing and that, you know, and then when you raise the issue of excess deaths, it all becomes, well, you know, we, we still prefer to believe despite the data that those people were going to die anyway and, and then very rapidly will come the, yeah, but they had pre-existing conditions mm. anyway. So, but but e- everyone does and everyone who dies has pre-existing conditions. So all of this is nonsense that's, mm. that is um, just kind of, you know, the, the these conscience assuaging things so that we can divert back to the old rut that we were in with not preventing airborne disease without Mm. regard um, for an already marginalised large sections of the community, the First Nations people and and people with uh, long-term physical disorders. So how, how well is the 
disability sector, the the consumer part of it, gelling together in in terms of trying to um, fight these things. Because I know that you're, um, uh, I think, on the board of people with disabilities. Is that what? What's your role there? I am. So I'm the previous president and current vice president. Um, yeah. So it's our past president, Craig Wallace. Um, has been locked down for three years and his brother, who has the same rare condition that he has, is currently in ICU with COVID, which is hospital acquired. Um, there's really become a big division between people who are at risk and clinically vulnerable and people who are not. Um, funnily enough, some of the people who are very COVID conscious and aware are my fellow autistic people who you know, understand science and aren't swayed by social norms. How funny is that, you know? And so we're yeah. used to wearing a mask metaphorically and now it's physically, mm. not for everybody, you know, it's it's not every autistic person, but a lot of autistic people are still um, masking, are still taking precautions, are still very aware of the science, are still reading the science. Um, but there's really become a split between not just the disabled people who are clinically at risk, but the disabled people who have fought very hard to be part of the community and now don't want to re relinquish that inclusion. And so it has become a very um, a fraught space, I guess, where people you know, have earned hard-won goals to be able to be part of the world and then being asked to give them up because they might be more at risk, they just don't want to know. So it has been really, really tricky. And how do you deal with the anger um, that, that people bring forward in these circumstances? Because often this will bring out our stress behaviours and people get um, frustrated and, and angry with, with one another and I'm never sure how to um, how, how best to diffuse those situations and try and keep the family together or is that, is that a, bit of a, a bit of an insoluble problem and one that will only come with time? So I think it's, you know, remembering our humanity and shared humanity. Um, I come from the country and, you know, you tend to find that we don't have um, those artificial divisions as much as other people do because in the country you're kind of, you know, connecting with people on a different level. It's not quite as political. And um, so I think just trying to understand people's perspective really you know so that you know i'm guilty of you know making fun of people who are anti-vaxxers and calling them cookers and all of this kind of thing um the reality of that is that there's a bunch of very vulnerable and frightened people who have gone the other way you know who um have seized on a bunch of misinformation and on junk science um and and have yep. found communities really you know, you look at their communities and they have very solid communities. They have really good information channels, misinformation channels. You know, they connect with each other in the same way that we people who are at risk are connecting. So I think really all this is about is people who are frightened, people who are in the middle of a crisis. It doesn't matter whether they're at-risk people or people who don't think that they're at risk or think that there's other, you know, vast forces out there. Um, we're really all doing the same things and that's seeking connection and seeking um, honesty and, you know, solutions to the problems that we have in day-to-day -day life. And there's got to be some middle ground in there. Without listening to each other, we're not going to find it. If you take a humanitarian approach, you need to consider solutions only in consultation with the people who are mainly suffering from the problem. Does it 
come at a net cost to you to be a mentor or do you find it something sustaining? Oh, no, look, I've been a youth leader for 30 years in the scout movement and so, you know, I'm coming from a movement where so many people are silverbacks and a bunch of old people generally run things and you try and get as many young people in as you can. Um, I find it um, fantastic having the opportunity to be a mentor to especially younger people. And, you know, it's sometimes difficult when people are at the beginning of learning something, you know, and you have to um, help them through things. But um, I think it's, it's been really joyous, actually. You know, um, um, young Senator Steele John has been a person who, um, you know, is another disabled person who I was really lucky when he was a tender young 18-year-old person who um, I made some space for him in a disabled persons event to give a political speech and he just blew everybody away because he's a magnificent orator and people um, recognised this and, you know, he sort of built this, um, I guess, movement in Western Australia in the disability community where people wanted to hear him speak and wanted to hear what he had to say. And of course, he was a, polit he's, he was a disabled person before he was a politician, but he's always been a politician. Um, but it's been an absolute joy having a friendship with Jordan and being respected enough to have, you know, to be a person that he can bounce ideas off and, you know, back with Jordan as well, that Jordan is a person who I'll bring up and say, look, what do you think about this? Because we all, we have a really strong community and the disability community and we can bring up people and say, look, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Um, because there's some really tricky issues that we do need to navigate. There's kind of a lot of parallels in, in um, mentoring young doctors, really, in that, isn't there? Yeah, there are. Um, and it's, you know, it's terribly difficult, isn't it? Because you never know if uh, people are just nodding politely at the, the nonsense that's coming out of uh, uh, the older doctor's mouth. But there is there certainly is, you know, some wisdom that you you do accrue that you hope that you can pass on uh, to people who are alive to it. I think with a lot of this, it's about really being alive and open to the concepts. I mean, a lot of people, doctors, a lot of people will listen to this conversation that you had with Sam and that we're having now and we'll just say, well, what a load of fluff and nonsense. You know, there's nothing tangible there. And, and so I think that is a big problem in that without a certain consciousness, these can feel like very abstract concepts uh, are not of direct relevance to the daily world. Um, and, and I think it's so important that some of this, happens in school and, and schools can be such brutal places but unless you can people can really understand these concepts of interdependence and looking after each other and inclusion and dignity from a very young age then I think for a lot of people once they become adults it's just too yeah, late. Yeah I, I remember having a patient not too long ago who's a um uh 18 year old fellow with cerebral palsy who told me that he'd just finished in a in a local high school and i said to him well i'm glad you went to high school now rather than back in the 80s because the way i saw um 
people who had a, a disability mm. treated back then w was completely yeah. lacking any sort of um, insight. And he said, well, you don't know what you're talking about because mm. it's just as bad now. And he said, there's a few, few people who understand, but yeah, I was brutally exactly. bullied the entire time I was at school. And so I mm. think there's still a bit of work to be done. You're right. Mm. And that's what, yeah, very much, very much. And that's what really gets me aggravated about this whole, you know, won't you think of the children, this, this stuff about, you know, the, the lockdowns and the mental health crisis that this has caused. When in fact, in reality, of course, there are children who, who suffered by not going to school. But overall, the, the data shows that schools, school being out, not in session, is associated with an improved mental health in children, which, you know, makes, makes sense when you reflect on your own school experience and you go, well, you know, you think, how, how do people stratify at school? You've got some for whom it's, you know, there's a few who absolutely love it. It's a blissful experience. They skip along. It's their thing. For most people, it's like, meh, okay, I can live with it. And for another minority, it's absolute hell from start to finish. So you think, well, you know, if school's not in session for, for a short while, the people who are living on cloud nine of bliss are not going to suddenly yep. become suicidal. Everybody else is just going to go, meh. And the people, which they do when they're in school anyway, they go, yeah, okay, take it or leave it. I can survive. Uh, and then the small minority of people for whom it is absolute hell, they go, oh, thank God, I don't have to go to school today. So, you know, let's have let's have a bit of reality about school, please, and a bit of honesty. Yeah. Really, these are all just yeah. different kind of colours of the sure. same species, aren't they? These these various discriminatory things that we see. It's a um, it's an othering, and it's a you know, it's a privilege thing, and it's uh, whether you're whether you're old or you're from a different race or religion or or um, uh, gender or sexuality or uh, level of ability or illness, the, the, these things I think are all, all come from the same place and and need the same solutions. And in terms of the truth telling around, um, you know, we're a very well off community, both in terms of resource and in terms of um, uh, intellect. So we should be able to just look after people. Yeah. And the problem is never COVID. You know, the problem has always been discrimination, ableism, eugenics, and, you know, and um, uh, people, really. Mm. Um, and that's yeah. something we can change. People have got the opportunity to change the way that they look at those things. And we have an opportunity to remember that everybody belongs in society. And in terms of making people feel... Uh, less uncomfortable when they when they encounter people in a wheelchair or someone with um, autism or ADHD. Do you have Do you have any advice for people as to um, how to approach those situations? Oh, such a chicken and egg thing, you know. The only thing that changes people's mind, in my experience, is proximity to us. So, of course, if we're kept away from the world, it means nobody ever gets a chance to learn, right? Um, mm. If you work with a person with Down syndrome or a person with um, intellectual disability, a person who uses a wheelchair, 
you just have an understanding that people are different, the same as race, the same as queerness, the same as all kinds of differences, you know. And so the solution is to have everyone in society, and that's what we need to work on, you know, that, those attitudes of um, inclusion, being accepting of diversity. Making people visible. I'm always uncomfortable with the exploitative nature of um, reality television. I wonder if love on the spectrum, whether it's a good thing or bad, but I, I still have it in the uh, in, in the problematic category for me it's, at the it's moment. In, it's in my pet hate category. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Good. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad good... that my discomfort about it wasn't... Uh, it's a little bit carnival-like for me. It's a, Yeah, I think it's... Um, somebody did a voiceover about it and they put it over... You know some generic love scene that had non-disabled actors and it was like here is john john like zoos john is going to go and have a drink with mary and like you know that's just not the narrative you have when you're trying to pick someone up right so yeah i also have the thing is the problem there that it wasn't produced and and edited and written by by Bang autistic on. people bang on you know so we have this saying that we're quite often regarded as self-narrating zoo animals and um it comes very much under that category for me unfortunately i think if they had some autistic producers and you know if you had a, an all autistic directors and cast and and um people organizing i think it would be a very different pub yeah production in general if you head in the direction of being fair to everybody then it's not that hard and and i think that there was uh there's lots of famous philosophers who said who have said that working out that the good thing to do is not that difficult it really uh, is it's, not it's, i love that it's, it's pretty obvious to most thank you so much for your time and we'll no keep problems. on uh, banging on about well, thank it thank you so much to you and david for you know all the work that you've been doing and to you know the other advocate doctors we call you now um i think she's a, a very eloquent and Interesting person, isn't she? Yeah. Oh, incredibly. Very much, very much. I've just got such respect for her. And, you know, I mean, I, I feel embarrassed, you know, because as she said, you know, it's not about COVID, it's about discrimination, ableism and eugenics, and it always has been. And, uh, you know, this kind of revelation that's latterly come to me you know, it's just like, I, I can tell everybody from that disability community must be just rolling their eyes and going, oh my God, it took you long enough, you know. It's, um, and it's been in front of us all this time. Um, and it really took, it really took, for me, it really took COVID to bring it to the fore. And the thing that really did it for me was, the New South Wales daily press conferences where they would read out the list of people who died with underlying conditions. And I wrote an article about this in September 2021, which was in the Sydney Morning Herald before I decided I was never going to write for them again, but um, about this whole underlying conditions business and how it was othering these people and saying to everybody who was listening, it's okay. They were sitting ducks anyway. This won't happen to you. It's all fine. And it devalued their lives. And it was nonsense as well. So um, 
And that's when I really started to appreciate the significance of what was happening. Uh, and, and then, of course, you reflect and you go, oh, my God, it's been like this since forever. And I've just been yeah. blissfully the, the reason floating we along. You know, so, oh, God, this is embarrassing. The know. reason we don't make progress with chronic problems in providing health care is not because we can't and not because we don't understand the yeah. problem. It's because we don't have the political leadership and implementation yes. skills to do so. Yes, yes. So to mm. be very clear, these problems are not uh, wicked in the sense that they're difficult to solve. And I've always been impressed with the examples that you've given of human ingenuity during wartime. Mm. Yeah. And we applied some of those and suddenly saw what uh, mm. we were capable of during the early part of the pandemic when it was... Mm. Um, clearly understood by those in charge that this was airborne and likely to spread very quickly and clearly understood by those in charge in pre-vaccine era the potential um, for mass death, which unfortunately mm. was seen in some places. However, the, um, the throttle sort of comes right off all of those yeah. protections before too long and we go back to this fallacy of a winner takes all where of course mm. the world's pretty terrible even for the winner uh in those circumstances yeah. where that where that fallacies followed through and the reasons for why that remains popular and in place i suppose is something we can go through another time yeah i was just going to say i mean we've returned to flattening the curve we've returned to managing to capacity uh where uh, you know we just we just twist the throttle according to um uh, whether the hospitals are going to be flooded. Uh, and that's what this business about ratcheting up mitigations and, and reducing them with community level is about. And, and the most grotesque example of that was in the early part of the pandemic. In the winter of 2020 to 21, the Swiss were literally, in fact, they've deleted most of the tweets now, but there's still evidence out there. Uh, the cantonal, the, like the county authorities in Switzerland, were calibrating opening of the ski lifts to ICU occupancy in their district hospitals. So when the ICU occupancy went up, they would close the ski lifts. And literally, you know, it's this whole managing to capacity. And we're back to that now. You know, as long as there aren't, there isn't mass death in the streets, it's okay. Uh, uh, and, and we'll go back to pretending it's normal. But we, we've got hospitals now where people with cancer who are having chemotherapy go in and and they're at huge risk and there's no protection for them and it's it's a disgrace yes there can be some some pushback in those regards though um if we give people information and if we give them the tools to for example talk about the the patient's charter of rights to, to safety mm. um and if we lawyer up in certain circumstances yep. so that's uh, yep. i think a good a good subject for another day mm. but reflecting on what mm. sam had to say isn't she a, an impressive uh um, oh, yeah and eloquent uh, individual, not surprised yeah. that she has, despite her circumstances, been a great um, advocate for people with disability. And, yeah, and, uh, and very unbitter. You know, an, an inspiration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unbitter, I would say. Well, uh, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm pretty bitter and I'm, you know, I haven't had to live with 
uh, with with disability. I'm on the able-bodied side, you know, and and uh, I haven't had to live with being yeah, I think despised I'm, uh, and having my dignity. And uh, so I th I'm really impressed with with her attitude. Does not some of your um, does not some of your bitterness come from your embarrassment that it is yeah. your peers to a large degree who are in charge and your peers to a large degree who are being callous? I think it probably does. It d probably does. It makes me really angry, actually. Uh, yeah, and me too. Uh, the last time, the last time I was, uh, I kind of work in bursts of several months at a time. And the last time I was doing it, at the end of it, I was just like, I got to get out, you know, because this is just really annoying me. I mean, I remember being in a recess, and I was wearing an N95. The anesthetist was wearing an N95. Nobody else was wearing an N95, and it's like this patient, if they survive does not need to contract an illness from us, you know, and it's just like, I've got to get out of here. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think that it's important to be um, sustainable and Sam, Sam mm. touched on that a bit too, is that, uh, you know, we can't yeah. burn ourselves out in the process or we're, we're no good to anyone, but we'll continue yeah. to be angrily podcasting these kind of ideas <laughs> and uh, thanks no for... Tuning into Thank this you. particular Thanks edition. For your, Thanks for your incredible efforts, Andrew. Really appreciate it. A half finished lemonade tells me all I need to know about yesterday. I'm back here again. I told myself I'd stay a while away.
So 